Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It is time for the new Dan Vogler 4D Experience Podcast. Are you ready? Buckle in. Let's go for a ride. So, hello. Welcome to the 4D Experience Podcast. I am Dan Fogler. Um, and we're doing a little uh, Batman uh, podcast. We got the Uslane gentleman coming on later. But first, here's a little uh, story uh, Batman related. So I'm going to one of my first cons and I'm late to my flight. And uh, I j- just make it on. And I'm looking for overhead, you know, bag space where I can put my, you know, carry on. And um, I'm sitting where, you know, at the very front uh, two seats there. And I'm in the window and there's a, a gentleman sitting on the aisle. And I open up the overhead. I'm looking around like there's nowhere to put the bag. And I see that. There's a bag right over my seat that's pretty small that if I just move it, I could probably fit my bag. And I go, uh, hey, is it okay if I just shift this bag? You know, and in my head, I'm just like, hey, (laughs) I'm TV's Dan Fogler. Is it okay if I just touch this random person's bag? It's fine. I live in a different reality. And, And I hear... Don't touch it. Right? And I just freeze. I nearly shat myself. And I didn't know what it was. It was just like this primal thing that was deep in my DNA. You know, a voice from my my childhood. And I just immediately like I pulled my hand away from the bag, but I was just like all like butt hurt. And I was just like, well, what the God, what swear should I put the So I had to put my fucking bag like all the way in the back. And then uh, I come back and I, I move over this guy. And I'm just sitting there just in a huff the whole damn flight. I get to the Comic-Con. And I get to the first day there. I'm all excited. And I see the guy there. And he walks in and he's like, oh, he's in the green room. Who was this gentleman? And uh, someone says, uh, oh, that's Kevin Conroy. That's the voice of Batman. You want me to introduce you? And I'm just like, no, I met him already. And I was just like, oh, that's why there was a chill up my spine when I heard that guy talk. Don't touch it. Like, the hell was in there? Fucking batarangs? What did he have in there? Psionic uh, cyber tasers? Don't touch my flimsy floppy bag. 
Anyway, <laughs> it really would have been, Kevin, there really would have been enough room in there for my, my meager bag. But I wonder what was in there. Probably kryptonite to fuck with Superman later. Ah, okay. Well, oh, Kevin and I are real cool now. I mean, I don't know how cool we are. Definitely cooler than that day. But I see him at, at Comic-Cons and, you know, I, I, I love that story. Makes me very happy that Batman told me, don't touch my bag. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so, and he's cool, man. Big smiles all around. Um, anytime uh, I've seen him afterward. But that was quite an introduction to Batman. Hello, Michael Uslan. Michael! Hello. Yeah. Dan? <laughs> yes, this is Dan. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm in New York at the moment. And you're in London? I am in London. Are we, are we waiting for uh, David or what's the deal? Yeah, David will be on within a minute, um, Dan. But I got to tell you first, first and foremost, your portrayal of Francis is absolutely incredible. Um, when I started in the movie business back in 1976, I started as a motion picture production attorney at United Artists, which was a major studio back then and the only one based in New York City. And to make a long story short, I was just out of law school. I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground, really. And I'm learning the, the whole thing about uh, how you produce uh, movies, how the industry works, how you finance movies. They wind up putting me in, in charge of all... Oh, here comes David. David? Hello, guys. David's here. Hi, meet Dan. Dan, this is David. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the... Uh, how are you, Dan? Experience. Okay, okay. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you. Your dad was filling me in on the, uh, the foundation of uh, your, your great claim on pop culture here. So, uh, you want, <laughs> well, we're just, we're, just, you we're, just a, we're just a bunch of humble geeks over here. That's all, Dan. Yeah, me too. I started telling him about United Artists a little bit. Um, so I'm there, and they wind up putting me in charge of all of Francis's deals with American Zotrope. So I was in charge of the legal business and financial wow. affairs of Black, Black Stallion, Secret Garden. And for two and a half years of my freaking life, Dan, I was in charge of Apocalypse Now. Every day oh was a crisis. We had, these things, we had these things back then. They were black phones with no dials on them. And every lawyer... Um, had one in his office, and it was only connected to Arthur Krim and the chairman of the studio, the president of the studio, senior vice president of business affairs, chief financial officer, and the general counsel. Every morning I would come in and my black phone would be ringing. And believe me, it didn't ring when they wanted to tell you what a nice job you were doing. It was one crazy thing after another. So I get this call one morning from uh, Sid Landau, the CFO. He goes, Michael, did you... Now, remember, this is now 1977, maybe 8, early 8. He says, did you approve an expenditure of $100,000 in the Philippines for Francis's 40th birthday party on Apocalypse Now? I said, $100,000? What are you talking about? He says, you better get your ass up here right now. 
So I go running up there. I don't know what he's talking about. And he goes, look at these bills. They threw Francis a 40th birthday party. They flew in pasta from Rome to the Philippines. They flew in sides of beef from Texas. They flew in wine from Paris. Then they built them a 40-foot birthday cake, and they charged the whole thing off to the picture. I don't know what $100,000 in 1977 is worth today, but you can imagine. <laughs> and that's, that's what my life was like every day. Um, he, he built the sets, a typhoon came in and hit him. And everything had to be rebuilt, and the whole cast and crew were standing around. They start shooting, Martin Sheen has a heart attack. Everybody has to stand around. Uh, it, it, was, it was one of the most unbelievable experiences. They kept telling me I was getting the experience of 11 different movies on this one movie. But, my God, um, so uh, let, let me jump to the concluding story here. Francis finished, uh, Fr Francis finished the rough cut of Apocalypse Now, and he was bringing it in to show the president of the studio, the head of production, and, um, and, and the top senior vice presidents. It was in the executive screening room on the 13th floor. And I was asked to be there because I was a lawyer in charge of the project. So it's every muckamuck at the studio is in there. Francis comes in literally with the reels in the cans. And he sits in the middle of the room, and there's a big no-smoking sign, puffing on a big cigar. He puts one hand out over the left chair, one hand out over the right chair. And the new president of the studio comes in, who was as Aryan as you could get. Um, as, as the Jew boy from New Jersey sitting in the back row, I was always fearful of the guy. And they unreal Apocalypse Now, the rough cut, which was about three hours and something long. At the end of it, the lights come on. There is absolute uncomfortable silence in the room. And with that, the, present, the new president of the studio starts clapping like clap, clap, clap. So every senior vice president now starts to clap to his feet, afraid if they clap too much, he'll think that they like it. And if they don't clap right. enough, they'll think so this, Dan, this goes on for about 20 seconds. And with that, the head of the studio stands up, buttons his suit jacket, turns around and looks at Francis, extends his hand to him over three rows, shakes his hand, doesn't say a word, smiles, and then turns around and walks out of the room, followed by every single studio vice president senior vice president. I'm the last one left in the room with Francis. And he doesn't know what the fuck just happened. It was, it was like one of the most embarrassing, uncomfortable moments I've ever experienced. And then, of course, I was in the meetings on the fallout afterwards with that. And I was, at that time, one of no more than seven people that actually saw all three endings of Apocalypse Now, um, two of which I, I had to watch on a movieola. Um, it, it, it was just the most incredible experience. And then to watch you as Francis, I mean, you just absolutely nailed him. You just nailed him.
and it, it, it's, it's a fantastic performance. So com coming from where I come from, I, I just couldn't wait to talk to you and tell you how much I, I thought of what you had accomplished there. Wow. Thank you, man. That's, that's, wow. I did not know that you were involved that closely with Francis. That's amazing. Well, um, the season's almost over. You, have you watched the whole season? Haven't seen. The I whole mean, I got, season I got, the, I got, the, I got the last episode left. So Dan, don't spoil anything, Dan. Even though I kind of know how okay. it ends, but uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, can't, yeah. Uh, I can't wait for the last episode. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I'm very proud of it. And with hearing you talk about Apocalypse Now, like, there's been a lot of speculation about if this is a big hit and it makes a big splash. What would a season two look like? I'm wondering if we can get into that apocalypse now territory, you know. Well, let me tell you about that. It would make a great one. And what you need to do is get the rights to Eleanor Coppola's book, Notes. I made her book deal back then, and it has since been made into a documentary. And Francis basically became Kurtz. He became the Marlon Brando uh, character. He, he went off the deep end. He was nuts. He thought he was in the Philippines. It, it was an amazing thing to see unfold. But but Eleanor, from her, the perspective of Francis's wife, wrote a tell-all book. It's electrifying, and you should see that or see, see the uh, documentary or read the book. I think that's that's what your next series should be. And by the way, I mean, I have to cement. Yeah. Uh, just to, to cement this story, uh, I spent an evening at dinner at the Old Palm Restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard with Robert Evans. And that was something I will never forget. <laughs> Wait, when and was by that? the way, um, this would have been nineteen eighty nine. Wow. Nineteen eighty nine. And um, my daughter Sarah, David's kid sister, used to do his makeup every morning. She would go to his house every single day. He would not leave his house in his later years unless he was completely made up and had the tan and looked as good as he could look. Um, he would not leave the house. So Sarah was his, his lifeline in, in his last, I think she, she worked for Evans for, had to be at least five or six years. 1989, and you're, you're chilling with Bob Evans. In, uh, where was it? You're at the Palm. And, uh, yeah. so what was that like, man? I mean, was he, you know, did he, did he live up to his, uh, infamy? Um, so but tell Bob, me about how, how was the Bob Evans uh, meeting. Well, he was super. We were introduced by my cousin, Hal Gefsky, who was an agent at APA. Hal had been an agent since the late 30s in L.A. He was Cary Grant's agent. Margaret Dumont's agent. He discovered Sharon Tate and was her agent. I could go on and on about Hal. But Hal was old pals with Evans. So when he saw Evans sitting alone at the Palm, he went over and Evans said, please, you know, you join me for dinner. So he brought us over, sat down. He introduced me as if I was a visiting prince from another country. And Evans attempted to school me and tell me about Hollywood and how it works and how the studios are. Could not have been nicer. Um, could not have been a t more attempting to uh, spare me some pain by telling me some anecdotes and explaining how it works. He, w he was a gentleman, and it was fascinating. 
What do you think of uh, Matthew Good on the show playing Bob? Um, I think I, I think I, he's now great. projecting because I I didn't know Bob in, uh, in his prime, but I'm projecting that the energy that he did not have in his later years, like in the late '80s. Uh, he probably had tons of it when he was in his prime. So my assumption is he's nailed Bob Evans in his portrait. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he's going to get a lot of attention. These, these stories are great, man. It's amazing. I don't know um, what the future is with the with the show, you know, uh, but um, that's an interesting idea. Like I, I've seen, I've seen Heart to Darkness. Um, you know, the doc, doc companion to Apocalypse Now. I've seen that about a zillion times, and that was a big resource, you know, just in, in research. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think it would be cool to, to kind of, just to think, thinking about a second season or something, it would be cool to, to go into Godfather Part Two, which would be amazing, and then, Maybe at the end of it, you start to dip into Apocalypse Now. I think that would be cool. But, um, yeah, who knows, who knows, man? Yeah, well, if I could ever be helpful to you, again, it's uh, Eleanor's book, Notes, is going to be critical. And I saved my 20-page single-space type memo out detailing the entire financial structure of Apocalypse Now and distribution structure and, and legal structure and everybody's contract key provisions. And I still have it. So, um, typically, uh, I, that's think, I, think I could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, it's, we, I was like, if, uh, if it starts heading that direction, I'll send them your way, man, for sure. That, that would yeah, be so cool. Yeah. You're, you're talking to the guy who filed the liens on um, Coppola's godfather income because he put it up as part of the collateral to get the money from United Artists to make Apocalypse Now. I had, a, I, I had to put a lien on his house, all of his equipment, um, his daughters, I think. Um, I had to lean on everything. Um, but, I, but I do have those records. They do exist. Okay. So how did you acquire the Batman, man? <laughs> all right. So first of all, I tell this story in my memoir that I wrote. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. Okay. The audio book, the audio book just came out a couple, like a week ago. And Wait, are they making that into a Broadway show? Are they making that into a show on Broadway? Actually, I'm in New York City today for Broadway show meetings, and we have a big dinner with the director and the entire Nederlander wow. organization coming up next. So I will know a lot more tomorrow uh, as to how things are going, but right now they intend to open this thing up on Broadway spring of 2023, and it's my story. It's how as a kid in my 20s, a total comic book no way how I bought the rights, I raised money privately, and I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics in 1979 and went out to Hollywood with Batman in my back pocket, figured this would be a breeze. I wanted to do dark and serious Batman movies and show the world the true Batman, not the joke, not the comedy guy from TV. And I was turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. Warner Brothers wouldn't even let me in the room. They said, we have no interest in this. You're crazy. Goodbye. <laughs> As a result of that, Dan, it took me 10 years before I could get our first movie made with Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, and uh, Jack Nicholson. 10 years. And it was nothing but 10 years of rejection, 10 years of being told I suck, 10 years of being told my idea stinks, 
um, the head of Columbia Production, who had been there for 25 years, I pitched my heart out to him for my dark and serious Batman. And when I finished, he looks at me and he goes, Michael, you're crazy. Batman will never be a successful movie because our movie, Annie, hasn't done well. And wow. I, said to him, wait, wait, I, I said, are you talking about the little girl with the red hair who sings tomorrow? He goes, yeah. I go, what does that have to do with Batman? He said, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. That was my rejection from Columbia. Wow. Wow. At United Artists, Danny Risner, who is the head of East Coast Production, he said to me, Michael, you're fucking crazy. Batman and Robin will never be successful as a movie because the movie Robin and Marion hasn't done well. Now, I don't know if you remember that movie. It was Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn about an aging Robin Hood and Maid Marion. The guy, the guy turned down Batman at United Artists because they both had the word Robin in the title. Oh, my God. That was the atmosphere I was dealing with back then. Wow. Wow. You know, the executives all but came out of the very ridiculous. Okay, okay, look, hold on. Let's backtrack a second. So how did you, tell me, how did you actually acquire, like, what were the steps you took to actually own Batman? Just walk me through it. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to give you the abbreviated, abbreviated version. I'm a comic book geek. I learned to read from comics before I was four. I went to the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth. By the time I was 18 and graduating high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936 that filled my dad's garage. He never once got his car in the garage. I go off to college in Indiana, and it's the early 70s, and reflecting those times, they started an experimental curriculum department uh, and said, if anyone has an idea for a college course that has never been taught before, if you have the backing of a department on campus and can get the approval when you pitch it to the dean, you then, even as an undergrad, would have the right to teach it on campus for three hours of credit. So I said, okay, there's never in history in the world been a course on comic books. So I created a syllabus. And the main thrust was that comic books are a legitimate American art form as indigenous to this country as jazz. And that comic book superheroes are our modern-day mythology, our contemporary folklore. And I said to the dean, I got the backing of the folklore department on it. And I said to the dean, you know, the Greeks called them Hermes, the Romans called them the Flash. I call them, I mean, the Romans call them Mercury. I call them the Flash. The Greeks called them Neptune, uh, Poseidon. I, uh, the Romans called them Neptune. I call them Aquaman. And the dean said, give me a break. Come on, he goes, I read comic books when I was a little boy. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on, but all comic books are cheap entertainment for little kids, and I reject your theory. And at that moment in time, I was 19. Instead of bowing my head and picking up my comics and walking out, I stood my ground. I said to him, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? He said, yeah, so what? I said, so could you very, very briefly summarize the story of Moses for me? And the guy goes, listen, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. Hebrew couple place their infant son in a little wicker basket and send him down the river Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grew up and learned of his true heritage, he became a great hero to his I said, stop. Dean, that was great. He said you read Superman when you were a kid. By any chance, you remember the origin of Superman? He said, sure. Planet Krypton's about to blow up. 
A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and sent him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents who raise him as their own son, and with that he stops, stares at me for what I remember being an eternity, and says, Mr. Uslan, your course is accredited. And I became the world's first college professor of comic books. So... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With that, um, I go back to my house. I call my mom in New Jersey. I'm so excited. And I tell her what happened. She goes, Michael, that's great. She goes, but you know, if you don't market yourself, if you don't market your creative wares, nobody will ever know about them. I said, Ma, I'm in Bloomington, frickin' Indiana. I got no money. I'm 19 years old. Well, how am I supposed to market myself or market this? She goes, I don't know. You're a smart boy. You'll figure it out. So figuring I had nothing left to lose, I picked up the telephone. I called United Press International. I got a reporter on the phone, and I started screaming at the guy. I said, what's wrong with you? You're not doing your job. This is outrageous. He said, calm down, sir. What are you talking about? I said, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state they're using my money to teach our children comic books? This has got to be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America, and I slammed down the phone. As a result, <laughs> the guy winds up finding out there is a comic book course. He comes and interviews me. The article goes out. It's picked up by every newspaper in North America, a bunch in Europe. My phone starts ringing. I have television cameras at every class, reporters at every class. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from Stan Lee at Marvel Comics saying what I'm doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can he help me? And two hours later, I get a call from the president of DC Comics saying they, they've been listening to me on the radio and reading about me in magazines, and they think I'm a very innovative, bright young man, and they want to fly me to New York and talk about ways we can work together. I'm now working at DC Comics in New York in my summers, and I got to know everybody. They got to know how much I love superheroes and comic books and Batman um, they understood I was doing it as the world's first college professor of comic books. So when I went to buy the rights to Batman, they knew me. They knew I loved to do this stuff. They knew I would never do anything to hurt Batman and maybe could do something to help him. And nobody else on the planet Earth showed up. I was the only one. And the president of DC Comics said to me, Michael, I don't want to see you lose your money. He said, don't you realize since the show went off the air on TV, the brand is as dead as a dodo. Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. And I said, yeah, but nobody's ever seen a dark and serious comic book superhero movie before. This is going to be like a new form of entertainment. And he says, is there any way I can talk you out of this? I go, no. He said, all right, schmoozle, come on in. And that began a six-month negotiation, gave me enough time to raise money privately. And on October 3rd, 1979, I signed the contract, bought the rights to Batman, went to Hollywood, and little did I realize that would be the beginning of a 10-year-long quest to get our first Batman movie made. And the rest, as they say, is history. Okay, so, okay. Wow. And, and, and this is all in the show, right? This is all, is this a musical? 
On Broadway? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who's doing the music, man? You don't know yet. You can't talk about it. I miss that last thing. Uh, what's the style of the music? It's not a musical. Oh. It is going to be a straight oh, play, but the, but the music oh. of the times is going to be the soundtrack of my life. Who's playing you? That, sir, is a big question. We have a list, but we haven't crossed that bridge yet. Um, I need a great dinner meeting tonight. Then I need two great meetings in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll, and then we'll be able to figure out everything from there. So right now, I know, you guys exciting. Are, you guys are in the beginning stages here. So um, I am, uh, let me just uh, throw my hat in the ring there uh, when it gets to that point for, I don't know, whatever, whatever parts there are. I would, I would love to just read it, um, but, uh, but that sounds like a great project to be a part of, man. Let, let, please keep, let me know what's going on with that. I absolutely positively will. Absolutely. And David um, has kind of, uh, you know, grew up uh, as son of geek. So um, he's been doing amazing stuff, and he'll tell you a little bit about what he's been doing. Uh, and the two of us got to uh, bring Stan Lee to the fold, and we taught, the three of us taught the Smithsonian Institution's first ever online course, The Rise of the Superheroes. Um, which was an amazing experience as well. Um, Stan was kind of like David's crazy uncle. Uh, but David, why don't you give him a little bit of uh, your lowdown? I mean, listen, man, I'm just a, I'm just, uh, I'm just a real second-generation geek trying to put all of these pieces of this much bigger puzzle together that can actually support this IP on a global scale the way it needs to. You know, growing up in the household that I grew up where, you know, my pops, not only with Batman, but was, you know, the first to connect a bunch of other <clears throat> pieces from other worlds, like, uh, you know, being one of the first in a the, in the computer gaming space to ever adapt anything. He won the Emmy for Where in the World is Carmen San Diego back in the 80s. But, like, how to connect those pieces between publishing and gaming and location-based entertainment and immersive, uh, you know, entertainment, you know, different areas of licensing and not only play that game domestically but internationally, um, especially in key markets that are so important to our business, like, you know, different spots in Asia beyond, uh, you know, China and Korea and uh and some other important areas, too, like MENA and beyond. So we have, uh, and I have shepherded across a lot of businesses and a lot of strategic partnerships, you know, all over the world that can support uh, content in very interesting ways. Uh, and, you know, film and TV and the producing world is, is just one aspect in this uh, kind of much bigger ecosystem that now involves, you know, lots of crazy things like in this Web3, NFT, Metaverse, you know, crazy world that we live in and the really fucking cool content that is being created in that space too that deserves, you know, partnerships that can allow it to expand beyond its small little private communities and, you know, and just being on the forefront of all that. And that's why I spend so much of my time, you know, going to uh, all of these important trade shows and pop culture events virtually every month, all year around, all around the world to kind of stay on the forefront of all of that. And whether it's the Frankfurt Book Fairs or the International Licensing Expos or the Comic-Cons or the Toy Fairs or the E3s or the China Joys 
and the list goes on and on, the, the CESs, the NAB shows, you know, it, it all plays into this much bigger content business that, that we, we play in. And, uh, you know, with, with somebody like you, Dan, I mean, you know, listen, I've, I've been a fan of yours for, for, for quite some time, and you obviously got that geek blood pumping through, uh, through your veins as well. And, you know, if there are ways uh, that we could be supportive with, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, our publishing relationships, doing something new and fun on that, in that medium, or any other ways that, that we could be, you know, supportive and find ourselves in uh in that sandbox and and have some fun together i think it would be uh i think it'd be awesome oh my god yeah yeah i i think that you know we should definitely have a follow-up meeting just to, to talk about all the projects we're working on and see how we could you know you know cross pollinate but um i wanted to ask you guys how you feel about your baby? Like, how do you feel about the direction Batman is going in, and the future of Batman? Um, what's your, what are your thoughts? The future of Batman is secure. Um, first of all, I'm elated that Discovery has moved in to take over from AT and T at Warner Brothers. AT and T was a disaster. Um, uh, Discovery is great. David Zaslav is very sensitive toward creative people and understands the process. And he and David Levy are, are uh, cleaning house, and they're going to change the culture of that studio. They're going to change it. So I'm very, very happy about that. There are currently 29 Batman or Batman-related projects in the works between features, digital, HBO Max, animation, Lego, you know, you name it. And um, I was so ecstatic over Matt Reeves, what he did with the Batman. Uh, I went back and looked at the file. I first tried to convince Warner Brothers to let us do Batman as the world's greatest detective in an email in November of 1989. So it's taken me 33 years to get that movie made, and now I am just thrilled beyond belief um, that the whole genre of what a comic book superhero movie could be has been completely reinvented. Um, Joker, same way, with genius Todd Phillips at the helm. What he and Joaquin were able to do with that, again, a complete reinvention of what a comic book movie could be. And let me tell you, Joker 2, coming up next with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Lady Gaga as a musical, and people are completely floored by that and don't even know how to begin to process it. And I usually say, you know, in the first Joker movie, one point of controversy, people weren't sure which scenes they were watching were re really happening and which scenes were merely delusions in the mind of the Joker. Or if the whole movie was a delusion in the mind of the Joker who was just sitting in a dark room in the Arkham Asylum in a straitjacket. So picture him being treated by, heart, by Dr. Quinn uh, as she goes off the deep end, as she um, relates to his wow. delusions, and how she, in her delusionary state, perceives their relationship in life, and all of a sudden the concept of a Moulin Rouge or whatever begins to make incredible sense. This is daring, this is bold, this is out of the box, and I think it's genius. That got me very, very excited for that project. I did not know how to process it. At first, I thought it was a joke. 
At first, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was just like, oh, how hysterical. It's the Joker movie, and they're making a joke. And then the way you just described it, it sounds groundbreaking. Um, wow, man. That's, I it, it will be. And, and you, can bet, you can bet everything that there is no freaking way Joaquin Phoenix was going to sign on to this unless he thought it was at least up to the caliber of the first movie and as different and groundbreaking and not cookie-cutter stuff. Right, right. Wow. Okay, so I, a lot of people were kind of mixed on this most recent movie. I love the, you know, the long Halloween of it all, which is uh, one of my favorite Batman stories, which is him you know, doing procedural fucking detective work, which I love. And it touches on all of the different you know, bad guys that we love on the different holidays. And I just, I just, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Tim Sale and his art. And so I was happy that it, it felt like that there, were, there were homages to that in the film. What is your favorite Batman story that you would love to see done on film if it hasn't been done yet? That's a great question. Uh, Matt Reeves is going to be heavily influenced on the next one by Court of Owls. Um, okay, great. But he, inter- but he interplays from a lot of different sources and brings his own original stuff to the, to the play as well, which is great. For me, two movies I would love to see. AT&T told me, yeah, thanks very much. I don't think so. But I think with David Zaslav, we may get a completely different reaction with Mike DeLuca being over there now. Number one, I would love to see a Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton taking on the role of Bruce Wayne at age 75. I think that would be an incredible film. And I also think Tim Burton should be brought back to direct it so he would have a trilogy. Years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Whatever's happening with this uh, Flash movie, it seems like they're kind of, it could very well go in that direction. That's going to open up the doors for all of this. It's a, it's a multiverse yeah. thing, and you're going to see all kinds of mind-boggling great stuff in there, and it, does, it will open the door to everything, provided they don't have to go back now and reshoot all the scenes with Ezra Miller. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with that mess. But the Keaton stuff, yeah. you know, it's just awesome seeing the 89 Batmobile again and the Batcave and uh, even the Gotham City set from the back lot of Pinewood. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff there. 20 years ago, I tried to get a Batman Beyond movie going. Paul Dini from the Batman the Animated Series actually wrote a great script. But then Warner brought in a crummy oh. director who didn't have any idea what he was doing. And I wanted it to be a Clint Eastwood movie. To me, Clint Eastwood would have yeah. been Bruce Wayne at age 75. He would have been perfect with a cane. Oh, but it was yeah. not meant to be, so I'm hoping maybe we could do it now. With Keith. Um, the other thing, and this will shock you, I would love, to, and, and they, they said, no, go away. I would love to take what I consider to be the best Batman story ever filmed, because it was in animation, which is Mask of the Phantasm, and turn it into a live action. Uh, wow. That's, that's my dream. Holy shit. Holy shit. Um... Yeah, that was great. My God, um, I I would love to see all this come to fruition, man. I, I that, that's incredible. You're giving me a lot of hope. Um, you can answer this question for me. Yeah. Uh, 
It's like a legend that Nicholson, the deal that he had for the first movie, and then did he get a piece of, like, three subsequent sequels after that or something? Like, he didn't even have to be a part of it, but he got a piece of it? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, I know a lot about it. Um, he had the deal with the century, but it wasn't. Uh, it was only one century, not three centuries. So he got paid six million <laughs> <cash> <laughs> against a <clears throat> against a chunk of the gross, and the gross included right. merchandising. So he got a piece of the action okay. on all of the merchandising, which on the first picture was about a billion dollars alone on the merchandising side. Holy shit! Um, so Nicholson. The last time I talked to um, his business manager, Sandy, uh, he had received a total of just over $60 million. But that, that was a generation ago, the last time I spoke to him. Right. So I'm wow. sure that more has trickled in since then. Since then. And, you know, but by today, you know, it might be 65, 66 million or so that he brought it, that he got in. And remember, we're talking primarily about 1989, 1990, 91 right. uh, numbers. So you got to figure out what the multiplier is. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> cool. And, and on, uh, on one more geeky note that you might like, or maybe not. Yeah. Uh, as of today, I have donated to Indiana University's Lilly Library, which is its rare book library, 45,000 comic books, books, and memorabilia for my collection. And uh, the only reason my son continues to talk to me is that I paid <laughs> for him every, every first issue of every Marvel comic. Uh, oh, from Fantastic Four wow. number one. Actually, from Strange Tales number one. Every every first appearance of, of the Marvel characters of the Silver Age, uh, and a couple of other little gems like every first appearance of every Silver Age DC character and every first issue, and a couple of others like uh, Superman number two, et cetera, thrown in into the mix. So um, <clears throat> we preserve those, but everything else has gone to Indiana. Wow. Are you guys going to go to, uh, are you guys going to be at San Diego Comic-Con? Oh, yeah. This year? Uh, we're going to be, we're going to be having, we're going to be having a bunch of events down there, too, that uh, if you're down there, you'll probably enjoy. Cool, you know, I'm going to be down there. Um, yeah, David, tell them what we're I'm doing with Stan. Yeah. When are you, uh, when are you going to be down there, Dan? Do you know which, which days yet? I'm going to be down there for the whole thing. I, I'm, uh, I'm with Heavy Metal. I got a, I got three comic book titles with them and an animated show coming out and uh, so I'm, I'm there for the long haul but I would love to catch up with you guys oh yeah it'll be, uh, it'll be great we're going to be uh, throwing the uh, the big uh, you know web 3 event at night with comic con with a whole bunch of big players in the metaverse and NFT space we're doing a lot of uh, other kinds of programming and activations as well but one of the things that we're uh, we're doing is kind of uh, honoring Stan because it is his 100th birthday year, and there's uh, some oh really uh, exciting things that are that are coming down with with things that are connected with Stan honoring that legacy, which are uh, which is going to be uh, a lot of fun, and um, you know, and then there's uh, there's the typical the typical craziness down there, but 
you know, I knew that you were, you know, playing around in the publishing space and doing certain things. And, again, as we get to know each other, you know, I, I'm looking forward to geeking out with you a bit because, you know, we have partners around the world, you know, big Webtoons partners, um, other big comic book and graphic novel and mainstream publishing partners, uh, you know, throughout Europe and and beyond. And there, there again, there might be a bunch of different different fun ways that uh, that that we can all play around and uh, you know and uh, have have some real fun. Absolutely, man. I'll, I mean, right after this call, I'm going to send you guys a Fogler's Fiction Fun Pack with all of my all of my content and everything that uh, you could possibly uh, be inspirational for you. But <laughs> awesome. um, I'm so happy that I got to talk to you guys. One, one of my friends, Greg Hildebrand of the Brothers Hildebrand, is doing a big pro new project with heavy metal. Oh yeah, They're, they've been working on it for quite a while now. Uh, he's he, he's excited about it. And um, do you know where you're going to stay in San Diego? Uh, they didn't tell me yet. They're putting me up somewhere. Um, hopefully, it's uh, if, if you're if you're free one day for either lunch or dinner, uh, let me know. And we'll coordinate something. We usually, you know, pull together some really interesting people for uh, for lunches and dinners and stuff. And uh, it'd be great if you could join us one of those times. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like uh, I mean, you guys are you guys are dabbling in the world that I love. You know, it's um, it's really cool. You 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 are the, probably the smartest gentleman I've ever known. I mean, my God, it's it's almost like um, I can't I can't wait to see the show. I would love to read that script if you if, if you don't mind sending it or whatever. Um, if you do, it's all good. But um, I'm so yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's it's in flux right now. We're going to know a lot more after tonight's uh, big dinner meeting. Cool. Uh, well, you know, but I think break a leg with that. Break a leg with that, man. Um, um, Thank you. I, I, the story, it just sounds like the potential is is huge. Um, and have you thought about making a graphic novel out of it? Uh, well, I've got two. I've I've written two two memoirs now. Um, the Boy Who Loved Batman, and the new one that just came out in March, Batman's Batman. And I just, I just did the audiobook versions of them that I narrated, which was a lot of fun. And they want me to write a third volume. And uh, when I see you at San Diego, I will tell you what I intend to put in the third volume, and it'll spin your head around. Awesome, man. Uh, great. Um, All right. Well, I look forward to coordinating and making sure we don't blow this opportunity. And uh, we'll see you um, hopefully in about four or five weeks. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a, it was a pleasure. Yeah, and Dan, Dan, when your uh, yes, when your when your schedule shapes up, you know, just uh, just drop us a line, and we'll uh, we'll coordinate effectively down there. Beautiful. All right, gentlemen, thank you for coming on my podcast. This is so cool. The, the audience is going to love this one. I, it's uh, just in time for uh, Comic-Con season. This is um, fantastic, and I, and I wish you luck with all your your uh, Batman and, and uh, comic-verse endeavors. 
Thanks so much, Dan. This was a real pleasure. Can't wait to, to meet you in person. Safe travels. Okay, gentlemen. Okay. All right. Bye. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. Be well. Wow. Man, that was some uh, pop culture history right there on the 40 Experience Podcast. Such a cool, such a cool story. All right. Can't wait to see that on Broadway. Looking forward to our meetings. Onward and upwards.